Welcome to this time of worship at First United Methodist Church in Pasadena, California. I'm Sandra Olwine and I serve as pastor here and on behalf of our staff and entire congregation, we're so glad that you have joined us for worship this day. In this season of Lent, we turn again and again to God's forgiving, merciful grace so that we might be renewed in our walk of faith, find purpose for our life, and serve God by loving our neighbors in God's name. In anticipation that the Spirit will meet us here in this time, let us turn our hearts then to praise and prayer.
Good morning. On this fifth Sunday of Lent, we gather in living rooms and family rooms, in offices and hospitals, on televisions, computers, and phones. Yet despite being gathered virtually, the Spirit holds us together as a community, as disciples. In gratitude for God's presence among us, will you join us in the call to worship? Every week is a new week, another chance to say, Here I am, use me. Every day is a new day, another chance to say, Thank you for yesterday, thank you for tomorrow. Every hour is a new hour, another chance to say, Again and again, make me new. We do not come to this time to stay the same. We come to this time to be changed. So let us worship our holy God, who created yesterday, will create tomorrow, and even now is creating something new. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.
In our gospel reading from John today, a group of Greek people approach the disciples and say, we would like to see Jesus. It's a brief, beautiful moment that the text doesn't spend a lot of time on. And yet it always catches my eye because the phrase, I want to see Jesus, feels like it should be my constant prayer. Help me see Jesus. I'd like to see Jesus. Bring me closer to Jesus. In the prayer of confession, we take a moment to recognize how much space exists between us and those words, I want to see Jesus. Trusting that even when we forget to seek out God, God is seeking us out. So would you join us in the prayer of confession today as we take one step closer to the divine. Gracious God, we want to see you. We want to be known as the people who looked for Jesus. But not only that, we want to be people who have your covenant written on our hearts. Why do we feel so far away from that at times? What went wrong? Where did we lose our way? Could you, would you once again write on our fragile hearts? Amen. hear these words of assurance. Friends, despite our wanderings, despite our distractions, despite wrong turns time and time again, we are known and loved by God. Like a lighthouse keeper by the sea, God will never stop waving us home. So hear and believe the good news of the gospel. Our fragile bones are held by the great creator. Our fragile hearts are loved by the great creator. Our tender spirits are forgiven by the great creator. Today is a new day. Today we are new people. Again and again we are forgiven. Again and again we are reformed. Thanks be to God. Amen. Oh,
Good morning, young Christians. Do you like to play with Play-Doh? If you have any Play-Doh or any kind of clay or putty, go get it right now. And if you don't have any, that's okay. You can use your imagination. I'm sure you've played with some kind of clay or putty before. When you do, what do you like to make with it? It's fun because you get to squish it in your hands and you can form it into any shape that you'd like. What kind of shapes do you like to make with your Play-Doh? I like to make mine into a heart. Oh, that's kind of a funny heart. That's a little bit better. The good thing about Play-Doh is that you can keep making it into new shapes again and again start over. If you don't like the way it looks, you get another try. One of the things that the Bible teaches us about God is that God is like a potter. A potter is a person who takes clay and shapes it into something useful. Shapes it and reshapes it again and again. And God does that with each of us. Each of us is like the clay that God reforms into something new. Do you ever feel like you need a second try? If you have some Play-Doh or clay, can you shape yours into a heart? There's a prophet in the Bible named Jeremiah, and Jeremiah shared God's promise, God's covenant that one day God would write God's law upon everyone's heart. What do you think that means? If God was going to write a law on all of our hearts, a rule that God wanted all of us to follow, what do you think that rule would be? Do you remember what we learned that Jesus said when he was asked what is the greatest commandment in the law? He said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, all of your mind and all of your strength. And he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The prophet Jeremiah said that when this promise has come true, we wouldn't even have to ask each other if we know God because everyone would know God. Everyone will know God and have God's law of love written on their hearts. And when we need forgiveness, God will always forgive us. God will always give us another chance to try again and keep on forming and shaping us into who God wants us to be. When you're finished playing with your Play-Doh, what do you do with it? It's important to put it back in the container and put the top on really tight or else what will happen? It'll dry out, right? And if it dries out and gets stuck, then it can't be reformed and reshaped into something new again. We want our hearts to stay shapeable so that God can keep reforming us so that our hearts can be more and more like God's. Let's pray. Dear God, 
Thank you for helping us change and grow and always letting us try again. Reform our hearts and our lives to be more and more like you. We turn our attention now to the Word of God as conveyed through the prophet Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, verses 31 through 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with those of the house of Israel and house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. gospel lesson today comes from John, chapter 12, verses 20 to 33. Listen for God's word through these words of scripture. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, 
in Galilee and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then in a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. This Lent, our focus has been on the nature of God, particularly exploring the way God is love. Now you might think six weeks of sermons on this is a few too many, yet if I went back through all of my sermons over the last seven years, I suspect we would find this was a constant theme. Why? Because in my heart of hearts, I believe it is the message that we most need to hear and the message we most need to believe, not as some sort of dogma or theory, but as a lived experience. And from that experience, we are sent into the world. Because you see, God's love isn't puny. It isn't just so that we can feel good about ourselves. Although that's certainly part of what I'm always wanting you to know. But that love, once we trust it, know it in our gut, rises up in us in a way that then compels us to love as we have been loved. And that love works on us again and again. Not because we are failures, but because we can have so much more love to share than we believe we do. Well, this morning, we're going to explore love that reforms us. And I couldn't think of a better conversation partner than Father Gregory Boyle, founder and CEO of Homeboy Industries, a Jesuit priest for over three decades. Father Greg is utterly grounded in the reality that God's love is making us all over again and again and again so that we might know love and be love in the world. The First Testament lesson this morning comes from the prophet Jeremiah, proclaiming that God is going to write the covenant on people's hearts. You know, one might say it's Jeremiah's version of tattoos on the heart. You know, it's about 11 years since you uh, released a book under that title. Can you reflect with us on how God works within each of us? You know, Jesus See? says uh, towards the end of his life, you know, I have more to tell you, but I don't think you can bear it. And we presume that that sort of means, oh gosh, really? I mean, it's like bad news. Is it really that bad that we won't be able to bear it? But I always 
posit that I think, no, what if it was exceeding, it's so good that it's hard for us to take it in, that I have so much more to tell you, but boy, you really can't hang with this because the news is that good. You know, we're always being invited into this upside down understanding. We think Christianity is a grim duty and Jesus saying, no, it's my joy, yours, your joy complete. It's different than what we expect. And that's always exciting. At Homeboy, we never hold up the bar and ask homies to measure up to it. You know, you hold the mirror up and you tell people the truth. And the truth is good. You are unshakably good. You're exactly what God had in mind when God made you. I had a homie the other day text me and he said, hey, Pops, how can I become a better man? I never feel when a homie says that, oh, wow, that's sort of a, a great longing and aspiration. I always am brokenhearted by it. So I texted him back. I said, here's the truth. You could not be even one bit better. That's the truth. So what you want them to do is inhabit their truth and to find their true self and loving. And then, you know, kind of, more and more fully inhabit their own dignity and nobility. You know, that's the good news. And, and we're always trying to do battle with the partial God we've settled for, the exacting, judgmental, wackadoodle God that we've kind of accepted. And, and the hope is that we will hold out for uh, the spacious and the expansive God who loves us without measure and without regret. Christianity is something you do. It's not a, a, an adherence to a set of beliefs. It's, you know, etched in your heart and it's inside out rather than outside in. And this is one of the aspects from this passage of, from Jeremiah that I've always gravitated towards coming to claim that the covenant isn't about some outward rules that we have to follow, but about an inward grace that shapes who we are and what we do. The covenant is also, uh, you know, as I have loved you, so must you have a special preferential care and love for the widow, orphan, and stranger. And, and that flies in the face of the God that we have heretofore settled for. If I was God, I would say, you know, as I have loved you, love me back. And yet you're not going to find that. It's receive the tenderness of God and become the tenderness of God in the world. And then you love the widow, orphan, and stranger. And in, in the time that that was written, you know, these were the people who society looked at and said, we can live without you. And so you try to stand in such a way in the world that says to the widow, orphan, and stranger in our midst today, we refuse to live without you. We won't live without you. What helped you learn that truth for yourself? Many years ago, I had this experience where I, I could actually see the movement from God is love, which is a kind of a concept. Later on came to this sort of God loves me, but a gnawing sense that it was begrudging. And then I had a moment in my life that changed my life where I, I felt in the deepest palpable way that it was in fact God's joy to love me. And I'd never shaken that since. And so it felt like the truest thing I could say about God. It's God's joy to love me. And it, it was the truest thing about me. And, and so then you, 
you know, you try to love as you have been loved. And then you try to be in the world who God is, compassionate, loving, and kind. And then you find that that tenderness is the highest form of spiritual maturity, that it's, it's how love becomes connective tissue and how love doesn't just stay in your head or your heart, but it becomes alive. You know, you have to choose to cherish and, and you can try to, you know, do that in your morning prayer. You don't choose it and then you never have to choose it again. It, no, you have to choose it with every breath. And then, but once you are doing that, it's a kind of consciousness you bring to your daily life. You're, with every breath you're choosing to cherish, then all of a sudden you go, wow, this is where the joy is. This is what was promised. This is my joy, yours, your joy complete. It's right there in that moment. And as you're conscious of doing it, where you're, you're anchored in what I call the living room, you know, which is where you're supposed to be living, as opposed to the bathroom, which is where you lament what happened yesterday, or, or the kitchen where you are anxious about tomorrow. The living room is the, you know, the present moment and the here and now. And, and it's in that place that with every breath you're choosing to cherish. And it's hard to sustain because we're always lamenting and we're always fretful. But if you can do it, it's where the joy resides in the present moment in choosing to cherish with every breath. You know, leaning into God's reforming of our lives helps us to make that choice to seek to be in alignment with God's activity. This really uh, is what Wesley understood about sanctifying grace. We are conscious of God in our living and seeking to align ourselves with God's movement. And conscious that, that, that we're, our deepest longing is to align ourselves, as you say. The homies always talk about, let's try to find the thorn underneath. When somebody is colored outside the line, some homie has behaved badly. I already know, don't be tripped up by bad behavior. It's just a language. So how do we figure out what language is this bad behavior speaking? And then a homie said once, well, let's try to find the thorn underneath. And, and he said, God knows how to find the thorn underneath. Even like today, the tragic shooting in Atlanta, we name it. You know, we say racially motivated Asian hate crime. But what it does is it creates a high moral distance. We're not that way. He apparently was that way. And high moral distance does one thing in particular, and that's it distances. And, and that's the opposite of what God hopes for. God hopes for kinship, connection. How do we ensure that there is no daylight that separates us? In moralizing, you know, it, it keeps us from each other. It moralizing really hasn't kept us moral. If you look at this horrific thing in Atlanta, and then you start to go, huh, well, you and I know that nobody whole, healthy, well, integrated, balanced would ever do such a thing. But if we, we kind of say evil or sin or something or wicked or monster, but if we really tried and, and held to the notion that we belong to each other and that every human being is unshakably good and some people are having trouble accessing that goodness or they're impeded, 
or they're blind for the moment, or they're stuck in an anguish that they didn't choose, it chose them. None of us are well until all of us are well. How do we help each other not fall between the cracks? You know, in such moments, I think we often tend to other people. You know, we think I wouldn't do that, a good person wouldn't do that, a faithful person wouldn't do that. We think that they're defective or uh, bad in some way. And as soon as we distance ourselves from someone saying, I could or would never do that, I think we create that space that you were describing earlier. Exactly, and it's self-congratulatory. You know, I, the, John's Gospel, I think it was this last Sunday, and it said the light came, but people preferred the darkness. And, and I put the Gospel down and I said, nonsense. I've never, I'm 66 years old, but I've never met anyone who preferred the darkness, ever. And I've worked with gang members for 37 years. I've never met anybody who preferred the darkness. You know, nobody prefers sadness or, or anguish or torment. Nobody. No, nobody prefers darkness. Once you know that, then it changes everything. Then you're not moralizing. You're going, how do we help somebody who's really stuck in a place where they can't access their unshakable goodness? They can't see it. And gang members have taught me that because I've never met anybody evil ever. Yeah. I, I name things terrible, but I never call them evil yeah. ever. And I know in my gut that God doesn't agree with that assessment. It just doesn't. And again, homies have taught me that because, you know, uh, every gang member, man or woman who walks through our doors at Homeboy Industries is a nine or a 10 on the ACEs study, you know, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. I'm a zero on the ACEs. And if you're a four or five on this 10 scale, then experts say you're going to have health issues and socializing issues, but imagine a nine or a 10. Now talk to me about sin. Talk to me about evil. I don't know how you can. Once you know what people have to carry in terms of trauma and just horrible things that, that happen to be done to them. Learning to lean into God's grace, into our created goodness every step of the way, isn't how most of us are taught. So what have you learned about that process from the people you have walked with over all these years? I mean, where have you found courage for your own reformation? It, it didn't take very long for me to, to be in the presence of gang members. And I went, wow, this is a really good person. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is a person who, who has carried so much pain. Oh my God, the day won't ever come when I have more courage or I am more noble or I'm closer to God. The day will never come where I, I will be asked to carry what every single one of these folks have had to carry in terms of despair and trauma or mental health issues. Then you can stand in awe at what people have to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. But I think that's how God sees. God doesn't co-sign on stuff. God is loving us into becoming the truth of who we are, which is our true, finding our true selves in loving. There's no such thing as, you know, God is not pleased with you, or you have disappointed God, or you have let God down. And I mean, that's just kind of not possible. 
because God is just all loving all the time, can't take her eyes off of you. I mean, that's how God is. Yeah. But, you know, I, I remember in the early days, uh, a, a probation officer who has since died, who was a good friend, and I loved her. She was terrific, and she loved kids. But every once in a while, she'd come up to me and say, hey, by the way, you know that kid Lefty? Don't even waste your time. That kid is pure evil. And of course, I always found that as a challenge. And that kid was never pure evil. I mean, it was just preposterous. And I was always frustrated that she had settled for that uh, way of seeing. It's just so predictable that it's a cliche. Traumatized folks tend to cause trauma. If you cherish people, then they'll find their way to the joy there is in cherishing. And then once you hear people's backstory and you go, oh my God, you know, his mom used to put cigarettes out on him and hold his head in the toilet and flush till he nearly drowned. That's the kid you're calling pure evil. And his anguish was not a thing he ever chose. It chose him. So I always wince when people say, you know, how do we teach these kids to make better choices? And they go, oh, ouch. Not all choices are created equal. My choice not to get in a gang growing up in Los Angeles, it, well, it's preposterous. I won every lottery from parents to, to zip code, to education, to you name it, to mental health. I mean, I just won all these lotteries. And the kids who, with whom I'm privileged to walk absolutely didn't. But their goodness is never hard to find. Never. You know, the gospel lesson day is the last public scene in John's gospel before moving into the events of the final days of Jesus's life. Jesus tells his disciples again about the need to die using the metaphor of a seed falling into the earth so that new life can begin to grow. Witnessing to that gospel theme of losing one's life to find it. How do you understand this? Well, we always think it's about deprivation. You know, it's a little bit like no greater love than this than to give your life. And we go, oh, so you want us to die for people. Well, it's about setting aside your own self-absorption because the joy is in the other and being other-centered. I mean, I, I used to do this when I would be on planes. You watch people, you know, how frantic they are and self-absorbed. Will I find room for my in the overhead compartment for my carry-on bag. And you can look at them and say, well, they're jerks. The flight attendant is saying, um, please, you know, step out of the aisle. And if you can just step into your seat and let other people go. Well, they make that announcement five times. It's like, what part don't you understand? So you start to say, what a jerk. But what they really are is they're stuck in self-absorption. And I've done this as a kind of a practice when I get on a plane. I practice to be other-centered. So when you walk on, you see the flight attendant, you say hi, you make eye contact. And it, you can see the person change visibly by having done that. And then, you know, I get in my seat and I watch people. And I get out of my seat and I help them. And I put their bag up and I do whatever. It's a practice that says, I won't be self-absorbed here and I'm going to focus on you. And I just suggest it as, a, as an exercise. Watch how you feel 
at the end of that. You feel joyful. And it's because you've just stepped out of your self-absorption and into an attention to another. People aren't unkind. They're just self-absorbed. You can be other-centered, which will lead you to this pathway where you love being loving. You begin, the first step is to, unless the grain of wheat dies, you, you step outside yourself and try to be just focused on the other. And Father Greg, I think sometimes that people probably look to you and your life and your witness and they marvel at your capacity to, to love others and to see good in people. Uh, we then other you, uh, remarking that you are a better human than we could ever hope to be, uh, distancing ourselves from God's glory that's in each of us. So every one of us can choose to do ordinary things like being kind on an airplane with love, with tenderness and all of us are capable of that. We just have to choose it and practice it. It reminds me of that Tom Hanks movie on, uh, about Mr. Rogers and where this journalist is standing watching Mr. Rogers on a rope line. And, and Mr. Rogers is so other-centered. He's focused, laser beam, on really being attentive to the person in front of him. And the journalist is kind of the main character of the movie, really. He turns to the this woman and introduces himself. Well, it's Mrs. Rogers. He says, well, what's it feel like to be married to a saint? And she kind of winces and she says, oh, I don't really like that word because it, it implies that not everybody will have access to what he's doing right now. And then she says, he's not a perfect person. He gets angry. She said, it's a practice. He works at it. And I remember hearing that and thought, Wow. Yeah, that's it. That once you know it's a practice, that you work at it, which is to say, with every breath, choose to cherish. It's a selfish endeavor, and that's okay, because the end result of that selfish endeavor is the joy that Jesus hopes you'll come to anyway. It's the only thing Jesus wants, joy for you. And we don't believe that. We think it's um, carry the cross, grim duty. Oh, my God, I'm not doing enough. I don't measure up. No, just joy. That's Jesus, is his agenda. God's agenda is kinship. Kinship is God's dream come true. But we think it's all be good and avoid evil. And, and God just sort of says, well, no. And God just tries to love us into being loving. Emily Heath, in an article in the Christian Century a few years ago, uh, suggested that what we are too often willing to risk our lives for is actually our fears. And she wrote, we allow fear to deprive us not of heartbeats and breaths, but of something even more precious, the fullness and beauty of a life lived well. She went on to say that the great threat to Christian faith is not that we will not be safe from the world's dangers, but that we will be held captive by our fears of them. That we will have more faith in our fear than we have in Christ. What have you learned about letting fear die so that this abundant life might grow? The sign of our authenticity as followers of Jesus will always be joy and bravery. The sign that we are off track is fear and sadness. 
And so you, you can detect this pretty quickly and pretty easily. And, you know, not, it's not about judgment. It's about how do we walk each other home, as they say. How do we invite each other into, into their own wholeness and health and wellness without ever striking the high moral distance that separates us? So inclusion is God and kinship is God's dream come true. But I always think of uh, Thomas, you know, who shows up in the room where everybody's locked up and afraid and sad. But Thomas, say what you will, He's not locked up in the room. He's not there when Jesus comes. Where is he? He's out in the streets. And I, oh, for me, he's the patron saint of joy and bravery. And the locked room becomes sort of kind of what the church does. You know, it's about circle the wagons and we're frightened and, and we're sad. We don't know how to access joy. You know, the bishop set priorities and I look at it and I go, well, it's easy to tell you what motivates it. You know, it's like uh, pray for vocations. Well, that just means you're afraid of ordaining women. And, and a pray for um, marriage and family. Well, that's, you're just afraid of, of gay marriage in uh, abortion, of course, which is just a, a fear of being reverent for complexity, you know? But I looked at it and I went, Fear and sadness, fear and sadness, fear and sadness. And it's all about fear. It's all about sadness. As opposed to inviting people to joy. You know, and it's the difference, like on the abortion uh, question, it's about how do we invite people to a fullness? And as you say, an abundance that at some point makes it possible for somebody not to terminate a pregnancy. I mean, isn't that the point? But instead, it's all... It's all fear and sadness all the time. And it's a terrible way to follow Jesus. And how do you invite people into this glorious thing, this remarkable journey that we'd all like to do together where Christianity is a way of life, where Christianity is what you do as opposed to litmus tests of what you think or believe. And my sense is that people long for that, no matter how entrenched they are in their own fear and sadness, they long to be invited to abundance. Brand who has a, a mantra and he always says, be fearless for me. And I use it sometimes, you know, when you're particularly anxious, be fearless for me. It helps, you know, it doesn't mean you're, you're without fear, but it's kind of anchored in a sense that God protects me from nothing but sustains me in everything and be fearless for me is a is a helpful mantra god protects me from nothing but sustains me in everything be fearless for me those are good words to end on this morning thank you so much father greg for taking this time with us just god bless you and this has been a privilege to chat with you Let us pray. God of grace and God of glory, we come to you in prayer as your people seeking the changes that you would have us make in ourselves and in the world. You call us from greed to generosity, from distraction to attention, 
from apathy to active participation. O God, forgive us when we ignore your calling on our lives and reform us as your people. Use us to stand against prejudice, to oppose violence in every form, and to transform our shared policies into those that lift up the downtrodden and honor each of your children. We pray for your holy church in every land, and today we especially give thanks for the life and witness of Father Greg Boyle. Bless all of our leaders, O God, especially our Bishop Grant and our Superintendent Jim. Watch over all of our people, and especially hear the prayers that are raised across the district today for our friends at the Chinese Mission in South Pasadena and those who serve in the North District Office. Hear our prayers for all who suffer this day in mind, body, or spirit. O God, we lift to your arms of mercy all the persons and situations that are found in today's prayer list, especially Pat Bruce, Richard Sice, and Nancy Turner. Send patience, strength, and healing on all who are suffering the effects of the coronavirus, those who are afflicted, those that mourn their loved, lost loved ones, and also the frontline medical health workers. And now in the confidence that we are your children, formed by you and always being reshaped by your will, we remember the words that Christ taught disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining in this time of worship from First United Methodist Church in Pasadena, California. Remember that you can always watch this service again or share it with others at our YouTube channel. Subscribe and receive free notifications of all of our upcoming events. And there are many upcoming events. When we published the midweek email this week, we were amazed at all the things that are going on despite this continued COVID separation. So I hope you'll take a moment to download the bulletin. A link can be found in the video description. There is a whole page in it detailing this year's observances during Holy Week, as well as notices of a number of other special events that are coming up soon. If you wish, wish to reach the clergy staff directly, please remember to use the special email connect at fumcpasadena.org. Thank you for continuing to use the church's online giving website. You'll find a link in the video description or you can access it anytime at the church's website. Spring is here. Be well, stay safe, take care of yourself this week, and get vaccinated when it's your turn. And remember, wear your mask.
Christ, God will make all things new, new stars, new dust, new life. So let God have your heart, every hardened edge and measured beat. Let God write something new in you. And then let God's newness smooth the rough parts of you. Stir the stagnant, forgive the unkind, and free the stuck. And then by the power of the Spirit, let love be loosed in your life so that together we can let it loose in the world in Christ's name. Amen.